welcome to our, our Good Friday service. Uh, we're just going to start with a word of prayer. Uh, we'll sing a song to help sort of center our minds where we're going, and we're just going to jump right into it. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, we thank you for, uh, for times like this that make us stop uh, what we normally do on a, on a Friday night. times when we can come together and, and remember what you've done for us. Let's try to put all the other distractions aside so it just doesn't, so we just don't miss it. So we thank you for this moment. We thank, we ask the Lord that you would be, that you would be in this moment. You'd be present with us, uh, stirring in our hearts. Lord, as we remember what you've done for us, that, uh, that it would be more than just a, a mental exercise of remembering. Lord, that on, on some level that we would, um, that we'd, we, would, we would feel it. We would know it. It would, it would change us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. the words that we can uh, muster up just, just pale. But we'll do our best. Amen.
Good Friday is a, a unique day for us as Christians. It is at once uh, a joyful thing and at once a very sorrowful thing. We recognize that because of the cross of Jesus, we who were dead, spiritually speaking, have been made alive. That we were slaves in our sin and we've been set free. We were under condemnation and the wrath of God and yet he justifies us. This is a joyous thing for us, yet at the same time it's a sorrowful thing because we recognize that this redemption has come at a great cost. Tonight, we want to remind ourselves of two things. The first is that Christ's sacrifice was completely necessary. And the second is that Christ's sacrifice was completely sufficient. We're going to sing songs together. We're going to meditate on scripture. And finally, we're going to partake of communion together. But all of this is meant to show us that God had a plan. And he enacted that plan. And this plan called for a way for sin to be paid for and removed. And that plan called for the cross and for Jesus. And yet, that cross was completely sufficient to do the work that it needed to do. Throughout scripture, we find that God uses all sorts of symbols to help us understand the truth. Symbols that that point to things uh, that are bigger. And he even uses numbers. When we look at scripture, for instance, the number seven is, is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's the, the number, well, we see it in creation. That after seven days, creation is completed. And, and on the seventh day, God rested. Uh, we see that, that seven has a particular role to play in the life of the Israelite people. As every seven years, they, they let the land rest. And we see it in the roles of, of debtors to, to those that are indebted to them, that, that every seven years debts are forgiven and the ones in debt walk away free. That throughout scripture, there is this picture of a work being done and a completion of that work that ends in rest and perfection. So tonight we're gonna look at seven passages of scripture and seven cups that demonstrate what it is that Christ has done for us in all of its sufficiency. Now, as I said, we're going to be taking, partaking of communion together. And so, um, if you haven't grabbed uh, the elements yet, in a few moments, we'll, we'll sing again. And at that time, would be a good time to get up and grab uh, the elements from the stations which are at the center. But let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you for what this day means for us. Thank you for the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, for living the holy, righteous life that we couldn't and offering that life up as a sacrifice. I pray that tonight we would be reminded of the truth of who you are and what you've done 
and that would change us. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first sacrifice ever made was by God himself. Upon Adam and Eve's rebellion, they learned shame and nakedness. Having this new knowledge, they sought to hide from God. They tried to cover their nakedness with the vegetation around them. It didn't work. When God came to them, he asked how it was that they knew of their nakedness. And upon their confession, he proclaimed a curse over them and a promise to them. The curse spoke of their broken relationship between one another and with him and how that would affect the rest of their lives. But the promise spoke of one who would come from, their, from them a descendant, a seed. This seed would crush the head of the one who deceived them, but in the process be bitten. Genesis 9, 3-6 I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the life blood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. The descendants of Adam and Eve, and grew, Eve grew in number, but also in depravity. Humanity became violent and murderous. In response to this, God chose one man and his family to begin again. Saving them and the other creatures he had made through a flood, God once again gives a promise that he would never again judge the earth in the same way. And he adds to this promise a command that since humans were created in his image, the blood that filled their veins was deemed as precious. It was not to be shed, and anyone who murders another person must pay with their own blood. Blood becomes the currency of redemption. Savior say thy strength 
indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray find in me thine all in all Genesis 22, verses 1 to 3, and 6 to 13. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. From Noah, a descendant came, Abraham. And to him, a promised son was given. He was precious to him. And God asked of him the unthinkable, to sacrifice him to God. Abraham, not knowing the outcome, obeyed in faith that his son could be raised from the dead. Upon his back, the wood was laid, and up the mountain the two went together. But when it came time to plunge the knife in, God interrupted. Then God provided a ram in Isaac's place. The blood of one could be substituted by another. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, 5 through 7, and 13. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The descendants of Isaac multiplied under the slavery of an Egyptian pharaoh. For four hundred years they languished, oppressed without a home. They called out to God. A savior was sent to them, and ten judgments were poured out on the Egyptians. The final blow was the death of all the firstborn sons in the land. But God, true to both mercy and judgment, proved a way of escape, building on what he had already established concerning redemption and substitution. An unblemished lamb would be killed in each household. Its blood would be painted over their doors, and it would cause the angel of the Lord to pass over. The sons of God's people would be spared. Upon this last act of judgment, the people were freed from their oppression. The blood that secures freedom must be perfect.
Leviticus 16, 15 through 22. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of the meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of the meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. God's people were led out of Egypt into the wilderness to be taught by him. He gave them a law to follow which contained both moral statutes and rules of holiness. He would dwell with them in a holy tabernacle that he gave them instructions to build, and he established the Day of Atonement. Once a year on this day, the high priest would sacrifice a bull, and after sprinkling the blood of the bull in God's presence, he would choose between two goats. The first would be sacrificed, and its blood, too, would be brought into the presence of the Lord. The second would have the sins of Israel confessed over it and let go into the wilderness. Through this act, God established that one day, one sacrifice could cover and remove the iniquities of all the people, not just one year, but for one lifetime. And in doing so, one man can enter into God's presence. The blood of one shed for many grants access to God.
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God's people were not able to keep God's laws. Their leaders became corrupt. Their kings sold them out with foreign allegiances. Their priests desecrated God's holy instructions. They were led into sin by false prophets. Though they still sacrificed to God, their sacrifices were impure. Though they still prayed, their prayers were insincere babbling. Though they still celebrated appointed feasts and gathered together in solemn assemblies, it was all a show. God knew it, and God hated it. So God let them go. His people were conquered and carried away, leaving behind a small remnant of faithful. And then silence. Four hundred years of silence. Without righteousness, blood sacrifice is meaningless. John 1, 1 and 14, followed by John 6, 53 through 58. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. After the silence, at just the right moment, God came to us in person. The Son of God was born, grew up, and lived the only righteous life ever lived by a man. The words we just read were not meant to be taken literally, but symbolically. His hearers with hard hearts and darkened minds could not understand them. He meant that he had come to be our sacrifice and that his blood could accomplish what humanity needed. At the cross, Christ's blood clothed our nakedness. At the cross, Christ's blood paid the cost of our redemption. At the cross, Christ's blood was substituted for ours. 
At the cross, Christ's blood set us free from sin. At the cross, Christ's blood covered the iniquities of countless people and gave them access into God's presence. At the cross, Christ's blood accomplished what only righteous divine blood could accomplish. The seventh cup is the one that we're going to partake of together tonight. So you can go ahead and take out the elements that you picked up when you came in. And then go ahead and remove the seal from the bread. The bread is the symbol of the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was, and is per- he was and is perfect, unblemished, and righteous, and of infinite value. Take and eat. Go ahead and remove the seal from the cup. You hold in your hand the symbol of the blood belonging to the second person of the Trinity the Son of God, who was and is our freedom, our new robe, our covering, and our escort into the throne room of God. Take and drink. Hallelujah. 
known as a cat of nine tails that would have stripped the flesh from his back. Thorns were pressed into his scalp. Gigantic nails were run through his hands and his feet. And ultimately a a spear would pierce his side. Jesus bled. He bled a lot. Ultimately, it would be that which would weaken him so much that he would be unable to lift himself up from the suffocating position the cross held him in. And he would suffocate. God made a way. God made a way to redeem us from sin and from death. He made a way, and it was a way we couldn't follow. It was a way we couldn't live up to. It was a way that only he could make and do for us. See, the cross of Jesus Christ, it is necessary. All of that blood was necessary. but it was also sufficient. You, you see, you, you look at what, what nearly five liters of blood looks like, and that looks like a lot, doesn't it? That one man should give so much. And yet when you consider that his blood was so holy and so perfect and so powerful that it was able to cover the sins of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived. That is sufficient. That is perfect. And from the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And it was. It is finished. The work of your salvation and redemption is finished. But look at the cost. We're going to close with one more song. And then we ask that you 
get up and leave this place in silence and ponder these things and wait because it's not over. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know nothing but the blood of Jesus for my pardon this I see for my cleansing this my Nothing but the blood of 
Jesus nothing but the blood of Jesus